And blessed Heavenly Father, we do humble ourselves and submit ourselves to you. Lord, that you would graciously accept us and impress upon us, Lord, this psalm. That we would be moved in all of its emotion. That we would accept, Lord, the truth that is taught in this psalm. And that we would practice, Lord, the prayer, the petitions, the the victory, Lord, the acceptance of your sovereign grace and providence, Lord, towards us as believers, as your children. So, Father, we ask now that you take this psalm, Lord, Psalm 6, and use it to further our growth and maturity in Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well, if you have your Bibles open, um, open your Bibles to Psalm 6. Psalm 6 is going to be our focus this afternoon. It is a prayer for mercy in the time of trouble. That's the heading that you'll find in many Bibles, and I think it's an accurate one. I think it rightly reflects the intent of David and the psalm itself. So I'm going to read the title and then I'll read these first ver- these 10 verses. It says, a prayer for mercy in the time of trouble for the choir director with stringed instruments upon an eight-string lyre, a psalm of David. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor hasten me in your wrath, or chasten me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed. And my soul is greatly dismayed, but you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness, for there is no mention of you in death. In Sheol, who will give you thanks? I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of my adversaries. Depart from me, all you who do iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed, and they shall turn back, and they will suddenly be ashamed. And thus ends the reading of that psalm. Um, Beloved, Psalm 6 is a, uh, a very hard psalm to read. It's a, a psalm that speaks of David's troubles. Um, the latter part of his life was full of trouble. It's a psalm that is just filled with grief. And David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has penned this psalm, and he is sharing his grief, his, the weight that he is carrying with him and how he takes that to the Lord and how he lays it before the Lord in these petitions. And at least the psalm in the last few verses closes with a a celebration, if you will. There there is victory in the psalm. Um, And so it's a psalm that not only sets before us the weight that is describing David's life, particularly the end of his life, but it also helps us to understand that a believer, a child of God, will never be ultimately consumed by that grief. And we need to remember that. And the Lord holds on to his children. And sometimes in our dismay, in our depression, in a time of our distress, that's 
That's the only truth and promise that we cling to. We don't know the secret will of God. We don't always have the answer to why God is allowing these things to distress us so. But what we do know and what we will learn even from this psalm, like other passages of scripture, that God holds on to his children. He upholds them. He keeps them. And that may touch some of us differently, but I think it touches all of us. If you are someone that's prone to darkness, if you are someone that's prone to the propensity of someone to to live in this environment of always focusing on maybe the negative or always focusing on the, the, the hand of the Lord is heavy upon me, this is for you. Number one, you're not alone. But number two, David didn't stay there. Not at least at this moment. He did find his way out of it and he found his way out of it again by petitioning the sovereign mercy of God. You know, maybe some of us have the propensity that everything's cheery, right? Everything is a celebration and and we need to learn that, well, that's just not the case mostly. I mean, we all have things that burden us. We all carry burdens. The older we get, the more we carry. So you young people, learn now what life is going to be about in the next 30 or 40 years. You're going to carry more and more burdens and you need to know how to do it. You need to know how to carry those burdens. You need to know what it is to be a Christian and carry these burdens. So tonight we're gonna look at this Psalm and make some application and hopefully we will certainly leave here in a better disposition of calling upon the Lord in time of distress. What we've already seen in in Psalm uh, 4 and 5, David's distress, a morning prayer of distress and an evening prayer of distress. But this prayer is slightly different. I think this prayer is a prayer that sets where David actually sits forth the turmoil of his conscience. Again, I'm speculating, but I do agree with many scholars that look at this psalm. It could be, I think it's reasonable to think that maybe this psalm was written after uh, David's season of sin with Bathsheba. He's been restored. But brothers and sisters, listen to me. Sin can be forgiven and God does forgive sin. But we, he doesn't always take away the consequences of those sins. The guilt of those sins, he removes, he washes it away. But oftentimes we're left with the consequences of those sins to teach us and to train us and to remind us of of what we are, but of who God is. Let's look at the verses. In verses one through three, we see David's petition. These petitions are strong petitions. I mean, notice verse one, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. I mean, notice the strong words, rebuke, anger, chasten, and wrath. I mean, that, that's, that's the where David is in his mindset. Prompts verse two, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed. Now, so in, look at the strong language in verse one, and then look at the reason in verse two. David is appealing to God's mercy because what is he saying about himself? I'm wasting away, Lord. My strength is going away. I'm pining away. I'm drifting off. 
That's one reason I think this psalm is related to David's later years. The older we get, the more sensitive we get to our sins. The more sensitive we get to the mercies of God, the more sensitive we become to the to the to the graciousness of God and the more we depend upon it because the older I get and the more I know myself and the, the more times that I've sinned against the Lord and sinned against others, where do I find myself? I find myself pleading for the mercies of God. And this is the case. It's not lovely at all. There's nothing cheery about it. It is most certainly not a Christmas psalm. And yet David admits he is losing his strength. He's in need of healing. He goes so far in the latter part of verse two to talk about his bones being dried up, dismayed, weak. I I mean, there's no greater weakness than my my bones are giving out. I I am just crushed, if you will, under the weight of this distress. I am in complete dismay here. But that's not the worst of it. Verse 3. There's something even a greater torment than body, and that's the soul. And my soul is greatly dismayed. Here's what I mean by the soul. Wounds heal. Bones heal. Oftentimes a fracture will heal and it's stronger in that spot than it was originally because of the buildup of the bone and the way it takes, God designed the body to take care of itself. But brothers and sisters, I, I don't know your past. I don't know, but if you've ever sin greatly against the Lord or greatly against someone you loved that comes back often you think about it and it can burden you and this is where David is saying my soul it's not just my body I sinned against the Lord I committed adultery I sinned against the nation of Israel I sinned against my own family I sinned against Uriah. I sent him to the front to die, to cover up my sin. How would you forget that? How, How would you ever see your army again and forget that? How would you ever forget that when you were talking to the general that you gave the order to go put Uriah at the front of the line? How would you ever forget that? How would you ever forget it every time you looked at the woman that used to be his wife? Now, this is something that was always before David, and I think that this psalm describes moments in his later life that he struggled with. Did they come and go? Yes, they come and go. And why do they come and go? Because God's merciful. God does not allow us to stay in seasons of darkness for too long. God knows to deliver us. And God allows us in his deliverance to drink from that grace, from that mercy, so that we have renewed strength. But notice, let's go back, let's look at some of these verses. Again, verse one, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. Now, notice what David is saying, David's petition. David's petition is not, Lord, don't rebuke me. That's not what David is saying. David is not even saying, Lord, don't chasten me. That's not what David is saying. But David is qualifying, and he said, but don't, but don't rebuke me in your anger. Don't chasten me in your wrath. Why? I'm too weak. I can't handle it. Chasten me as a father would his child. 
rebuke me like a father would his child, which is different. The way God rebukes and chastens his children is far different than the way God rebukes and chastens the unbeliever. Where there is severe, what? Anger and wrath. David here is recognizing the difference and he is pleading to the mercies of God and he says, oh Lord, no, you be a father to me. It's not that I don't want you to rebuke me. I need to be rebuked. Let us just go back for the sake of the psalm and as we make connections, let us go back to the prophet Nathan who went to rebuke David. Where would David be if God had not sent Nathan to David? If God had not used Nathan to what? Stir David up and to awaken him to his own guilt and sin, where would David be? Well, according to the psalm, he would be in the grave. He'd be in Sheol. We look at verse four and five. Return to me, O Lord, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. There is no mention of you in death and in Sheol. Who will give you thanks? David's like, that's where I would be. I would be among the dead. Now, let me, let me, let me make this point. The, the, the tender mercies of God, beloved, is to rebuke you in your sin. It's not to leave you in it. For God to leave you in your sin is to abandon you to hell. If God leaves you there, what's your recourse? What's your hope? If God abandons you, if God withdraws from you, then what is your hope? What could be your hope? And David is recognizing that. David sees that. And that's why David cries out in his prayer to God. And he says, oh God, don't rebuke me in your anger. Don't chasten me in your wrath for I cannot bear it. I can't handle it. I am too weak. I am too spiritually fragile, Lord. Don't handle me in your anger and wrath, but, te- but, but correct me as you would a son. Correct me, chasten me, but do it, Lord, tenderly. For I'm in need of rebuke, I am in need of correction. Now, I think verse one is important for all of us because I think we need to have the same mind of David and to understand how we need correction how we need chastening of the Lord. Sometimes we are stubborn. And sometimes the Lord sends physical afflictions into our lives as providential prophets to wake us up, to teach us that we're not superhuman and to teach us that we're not gonna live forever. See, God in his providence sends these messengers into our lives to change, to challenge us and to test us and to move us. And, and brothers and sisters, I've seen this time and time again as a pastor. When I have gone to pray with people and sit by their sickbed, I have seen mighty people be humbled and just reduced to just to this pile of, of humility because God has visited them with great, great trial of sickness. And God does that to save them from their sins. We could turn over to Hebrews chapter uh, 12. Um, a passage of scripture that speaks to the chastening of God. And there is certainly something to be said about uh, the uh, advantages, if you will, of, of chastening. I'll, I'll make an application here to children in a minute. But Hebrews chapter 12 and verse four, for you have 
For you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He scourges every son whom he receives. Discipline and scourge. Neither one are delightful. Neither one are delightful things. They are often very uncomfortable. They are often very unpleasant. And they have a way when they are sent of the Lord to perform that work of humility and dependence in us. They are often strong providences, sickness, uh, betrayal, attacks of the enemy, slander, persecution. The people that you love the most turn against you. And the Lord uses these things in our lives to do what? Humble us, chasten us, to, to draw us away from typically some character, some type of mannerism that we've developed that's unpleasing to the Lord, some habit that we would begin to ponder these things and examine our circumstances and examine our heart. Lord, you've sent this providential prophet, if you will, into my life. Lord, you have my attention. Verse seven, for discipline it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons for what son is there to whom the father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline for which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. I think brothers and sisters like David and the reason this Psalm is so important to us is this, is that like David, we must become familiar with hard providence. That God will use providential circumstances and situation and people in our lives to what? Chasten us because of our own sins. That God sends them into our lives to do what? Soften us toward our sins. It's, it's sin that we are practicing, that we've become indifferent to or hardened against. I mean, David maybe thought he was untouchable. I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. That would be reasonable. Kings have that problem. Leaders have that problem. Pastors, anybody in any leadership can easily fall into that mannerism of, I'm the leader here. I can do what I please. And if that's persisted in, then well, God has no choice if you are his son and daughter to do what? Rebuke you and chasten you. In fact, he wouldn't be a father to you if he didn't. And of course, that goes back to children, doesn't it? We certainly live in a day and age where discipline is frowned upon. In fact, it's not just frowned upon. Discipline is seen as destructive to the child. Isn't that anti-biblical? Isn't that contrary to what we're reading right now? How does that comport? Where does that fit in our Christian worldview, in our Christian theology? How does that concept and idea have a place in the Christian family? It doesn't. I will say I will say this till I go to the grave, and I've, I've witnessed this. It's not just biblical. I've witnessed it many times. I, I can preach a sermon that will guarantee the destruction of your children. One rule, 
And one rule only, give them everything they want. Give them everything they want and you will succeed in destroying them. They don't need accountability. Don't give them anything. Just give them what they want and you will destroy them. God doesn't treat us that way. Praise the Lord. The Lord holds us accountable. The Lord holds us accountable to our profession of faith. The Lord holds us accountable to the, to the revelation of his word, the things we know, the things we understand. He deals with us tenderly in our ignorance. Amen. We are all ignorant in one fashion or another. He deals with us according to where we are, but yet the Lord does not ignore us. He does deal with us. He does address us. He does address our sin. He does address our waywardness and our ill, our Ill manners. And as he's doing so with David. And let me also give you this argument. In theological terms, I mean, David was a type of Christ. David is very important in sort of the economy of redemption, right? The history of redemption. David is a type of Christ. David is seen as a, a type of the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingship and his favor to God. Remember what God said about David. He is a man after my what? My own heart. Of course, ultimately that truth is realized in whom? Jesus that Jesus was a son after God's own heart, if you will, performing and doing everything to the, to the infinite detail of God's will. But yet David is a very important figure in the economy of redemption. And yet what do we see God doing with David? Chastening and rebuking him for his sins. He's not so important. He's above being touched by the hand of God. And neither are any of us. In verse two, he certainly recognizes our guests. He cries out in that particular mercy, be gracious to me, O Lord. For I am pining away. Be gracious to me. Lord, let your rebuke be mitigated with grace. Let your wrath, let your chastening be mitigated with grace, O oh Lord. You know, if any of us parents, I mean, I, I, you know, there, are, there have been times, I'm going to make a confession, where I have told my children, this will hurt you way more than it hurts me. But there also have been times when it just absolutely broke me to have to discipline them because I knew the discipline needed to be severe. Why? Because of the sin. Because of the offense. Because they're not all the same. They're not all alike. And, 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 and that's the way the Lord deals with us. They're not all the same. He doesn't deal with all of our sin in the same way. And, and of course, when you look at David's sin, the adultery, the murder, and all of the things that he was involved in, and you could see that the severity of the chastening of the Lord even moved into the physical realm. It was not just his soul being burdened by the very guilt of the decisions that he once made, but it also affected him physically. And that is something that is overlooked in our day and time. We certainly live in the age of medical idolatry. You know, the white coat savior. And I'm not be, begrudging doctors. I'm not begrudging medicine. We, great advancement has taken place. The Lord has smiled on mankind with many of these improvements and technologies and in medical inventions and whatnot. Fantastic. I think one of the things that I'm constantly amazed by and applaud God for and something that I find myself just in awe over is the technologies that sometimes that, that's, that's applied to many children that are born with all of these abnormal, abnormal, abnormalities. 
the cleft palate, the, the arms, the dysfunctioning arms, the limbs, the legs. And, and these doctors come in there and are able through a series of surgeries to repair them. Isn't that wonderful? That's wonderful. That's breathtaking. I mean, it's astounding. Almost magical. And yet that's a gift of God. But it's not to be worshipped. It's not to be worshipped. We have to recognize, beloved, that so some of our physical problems may be spiritual problems. Guilt is a powerful, powerful emotion. Guilt is a powerful negative emotion, divinely so. It's so unpleasant. It's such an unpleasant companion. It's designed by God to move us to repentance. You don't want to, you want to get rid of it. But you can't get rid of this adversary of guilt through drugs. You, you can't get rid of this adversary of guilt through pleasure. You, you, you can't take enough drugs, whether they're prescribed or bought off the street, to silence it forever. You can't do it. Let me tell you about soul. Let me tell you about this soul guilt, this, this guilt of the soul, how powerful it is. You see it all around you. How do we see it all around us? Well, you look at the people that have the most. And why are they miserable? I mean, if, if you were just an animal, animals are built toward pleasure, gratification. I mean, an animal wants to, you know, sleep and reproduce and eat, right? That's about it. Okay. So when they have those things, they are satisfied. That doesn't happen to us. I mean, it may be a momentary infusion of dopamine, but it don't last long. Why? Because we're made in the image of God. God, the guilt is designed to move us to repentance and flee to God for reconciliation. It's so unsavory. It is so unpleasant. It is so unfriendly. We want to get rid of it. But when we try masking it, when we try silencing it, when we try to do anything other than take it to God who can wash it away, then all we're doing is we're compounding our problem problems and even physically. And David had done this to the point where he says, I've turned my couch into a river. I've dissolved my couch in tears. My bones ache. You see arthritis. My very joints scream at night. I can't rest because I am chastening I am being chastened by God. In verse three, when he talks about his soul and the great dismay of his soul, he does say, he says, but Lord, how long? Now, this is not just a, a, a snarky complaint. Lord, just go ahead and get it over with. That's not what David is doing. David knows he's, David's, I'm worthy of the chastisement. I'm worthy of it. But Lord, I know my frailties, I know my weaknesses, and Lord, just how long I will abide under your chastening hand. I could read to you a chapter that we confessed not too many weeks ago on the, the chapter of God's providence Chapter five, do you, do you remember paragraph five that I highlighted to you 
as we confessed it? Do you remember me highlighting that to you and telling you how important this is to your own personal sanctification and growth in Christ? Let me, let me read the chapter to you, the paragraph I mean. Listen to these words. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts that they may be humbled and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy ends. Now, let me just highlight just that the most wise and righteous and gracious God. He's wise because he knows how to do all things well. He knows how to do all things. He knows how to bring himself glory in your life and he knows how to cause you to benefit from it. Righteous. God never punishes anyone that doesn't deserve it. God never chastens one person that doesn't deserve it. And oftentimes, he lets us go for a season, doesn't he? Hoping that we would what? Or waiting for us to do what? Repent. To turn back to him. But what happens when we refuse to do so? Then the Lord sends these things into our lives to do what? Show us the corruption of our own hearts. To draw us closer to him. He said, well, I just don't appreciate it. I don't appreciate that. And that just sounds like a very mean God. Well, I tell you what's mean. I tell you what's mean. A mean is a parent that has the authority and the power to train up a child in the way they should go. And they let that child go their own way to their own destruction. I tell you what, that's mean. And praise God, he doesn't do that to us that he chastens us, that we might see ourselves. Let's look at verses four and five. Notice, and this is so important, in verses four and five, notice David's petition here. He says, return, O Lord, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness, for there is no mention of you in death in Sheol. You, who, will give thank, who will give you thanks? Now, here's another aspect of the Christian life, the life of the believer that we have, we struggle with. And that is sometimes we don't feel God's presence. Now, I use the word feel. I know us reformed folk don't like that. Like, oh, we don't, you know, we're not about emotions and the feelings, but however you want to say it, whether the perception the intention, the feeling. The point that, that David is making here is the Lord's not close to him. Have you ever had a season in your walk with him that you could not perceive his closeness? Doesn't feel right, does it? It's not right. He's there. So what's the, what's the reality? I mean, God's omnipresent. He's everywhere. Remember the promise that I quoted to you this morning that, that the, behold, uh, be, uh, I will be with you to the very end of the age. That was Jesus' promise to his disciples, wasn't it? To the church. I will be with you to the very end. I, will, I am present among you. So what is David talking about here? And it's this, beloved. It's that there are seasons in our lives where God's presence is not discernible to us. Why? Because we are under the burden of his chastisement. That's part of the chastisement. 
There's a passage, I think it's Exodus. Let's see here. Exodus 33. I may not get this one right. Okay, Exodus 33, this is, the, this is the, the reality. In verse one, he says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. I will send an angel before you, And I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hevite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst because you are an obstinate people, and I might destroy you on the way. God just told him to go up and enjoy all the goodness of the land but he said, I'm not going to be with you. Brothers and sisters, if you try to enjoy this life apart from God, it's not real enjoyment. (laughs) It's not real enjoyment. It's not real pleasure. God's communion with you, God's companionship, God's closeness is more than all of the celebrations of life. A lot of people celebrating the holiday that we're in. And it's nothing more than the exchanges of gift. But I hope that's not the case for us. When we go to exchange gifts, we know that this is nothing more than a community national token and symbol of the greatest gift given of all. God giving his son to this world. That matters. That means something. Whenever our fellowship, our communion, our souls are right with the Lord and we feel his presence, we have his countenance shining upon us. That's what David is saying here. Lord, return to me, rescue my soul. We see the echo of it in Psalm 51, don't we? Take not your Holy Spirit from me, O Lord. Don't do that. Don't leave me in my condition, but deliver me even from myself. And he pleads in verse four, return to me, O Lord, rescue my soul, save me because I'm good? No. Save me because of your loving kindness. When we go to God in prayer, we are never, we never build a foundation, uh, the, the, the petitions, we never offer or, or give those petitions on the foundation of our own merits. Because they fail. I mean, we might be fantastic one day. ho-hum the next day, and absolutely a terror the next. We plead according to God's loving kindness. This is a very important word, that loving kindness, that Hebrew word, because that word, the Hebrew word under that English phrase is a word that speaks to God's covenant mercies. I'm a God that chose to covenant with you, to have a relationship with you. And because I have a relationship with you that I chose sovereignly to have, I will be kind and merciful to you. I will love you. Why does God love us? Because he chose to love us. Not because we're worthy of it. 
David gives us a reason, or it's almost like he's offering to God reasons for answering his prayers in verse five. And we should pray this way too. Lord, don't destroy me. Lord, don't crush me. Lord, don't end my life, for there is no mention of you in death. I want to confess your grace. I want to plead your mercies. I want to tell sinners about you, Lord, but not in death. That doesn't happen. In Sheol, the grave, if you will, who will give you thanks? That's still David. David is talking to the Lord here. This is how you pray, beloved. These are not eloquent, beautiful, uh, garnished up prayers. These are not acts of, of, of ministers that somehow pray all of these eloquent prayers and all the congregants go, well, I wish I prayed like that. Now, this is a heart cry of pain and physical affliction. He's crying out to God. He goes, oh God, if you destroy me, how will I give thanks to you? Lord, you're worthy of giving thanks to. You're worthy of praise. But if you destroy me, how will I do so? Remember, Moses used the same argument with God when God was angry with the children in the desert. What did God say? Lord, now did you bring them out of Egypt just to kill them now? That's what people are going to say. People are going to say you're unmerciful. People are going to say you're unkind. And what was Moses doing? Moses was mediating between God and these sinners. He said, Lord, show them how merciful you are. And they roamed in the desert for 40 years. Their clothes didn't even wear out. Their shoes didn't even wear out. This is what David is saying. And now in verse six, he just, again, the turmoil here is hard to read. I am weary of my sighing. I have, every night I make my, my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. I mean, what, here's what David, David is saying. Look, he's a warrior king. Remember, he was not going to be allowed to build the temple because he was a man of bloodshed. This is not a weakling. This is not a sissy boy. Okay? This is a hardened soldier that has said before the Lord, I have been broken. My soul is in anguish because of my sin and my sin has affected my body. I am eaten up. I am in so much pain. I am in so much agony, both body and soul, that I cry myself to sleep every night. And what does he say? He goes, I have cried so much, I am tired of it. I remember going through a very hard time and I'm not one to be emotional. I'm passionate. I'm not emotional. But I remember coming to a place where I said, I cannot cry anymore. I can't do it. I'm out of tears. I'm done. If this is what the Lord has, this is what the Lord has. And I will submit to the providence of God. David is saying something very similar. David is confessing, I, I, I am weary. I have literally weakened myself. I've cried so much. And I've cried out so much. I've literally become weak of body. That's a graphic description my eye has wasted away with grief and has become old because of all my adversaries. And I don't think he's just talking about these physical enemies. I believe he's talking about even his own soul. What happens to our consciences when we aren't right? What does it do? It, it basically accuses us, doesn't it? That's what Paul says in Romans 2. Your conscience will either excuse you or accuse you. And David is having to contend with these things. In verse 8, 9, and 10, we certainly get to these last verses for the sake of time, but notice what he, he says. Now, this is where David begins in this prayer to show hope. 
as I said in the beginning, as bad as this is, as, as heavy as this is, brothers and sisters, a Christian can never fall into ultimate despair. They can despair, but not ultimately. Why? Because it's God who has us in his hands. Depart from me, all you who do iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. I, I, listen, think of Psalm 1. What does, the Psalm, what does Psalm 1 tell us not to do? Not to talk, stand, and fellowship, and sit with the ungodly. David seems now to be reckoning, taking uh, reconciliation. He seems to be taking record of his life and he's making steps of change. He says, depart from me, all you who do iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. Now David has taken inventory of his life and he's making changes. This is an often forgotten step in our prayers. Brothers and sisters, when we pray, we pray with the expectation of work, labor. Taking up the responsibility, there's the things that we ask God for, then we get up and we act like we have literally given God these petitions and he heard them. What does it say in the latter part of verse eight? For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. And all my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. And they shall turn back and they will suddenly be ashamed. And I think that the physical enemy part is important because there were people around David that said these things like this. You see, he thinks he's a man after God's own heart. Look at him. He's such a pitiful sinner. The ungodly love to point out the sins of the righteous. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, it, it's, you know, what do you do when you say, look, I'm a sinner. I'm, a, I, I'm an unlovely person on the inside that you won't, don't want to see in here. And yet God was kind and merciful and he saved me and, he, and he's put a new heart in me. And all along I've been changing. I've been reforming my thoughts, my emotions, my ideas. And it's so interesting when you have someone that wants to point out how sinful I am. Or just, you know, or, or like they, almost it's a revelation. But it's not the revelation to me. When someone calls you a sinner, is it a revelation to you? When someone says you're a hypocrite, is that a revelation to you, brother? Say, well, I have been at times. I don't want to be, but yeah, okay. But what does that mean? Is it a got you moment? Now, David, look, this is what was going on in David's life. And what David was saying is, I will rest and trust in the Lord to silence my adversaries. I will let the Lord raise me up and hold me up in the midst of all of this turmoil, in the midst of all of these accusations. I'll let the Lord glorify his name and I'll let the Lord work on them. You know what they point out to say? And I've seen this before. All of the things that they pointed out in the life of the righteous, they were guilty of. Hypocrites typically do spot hypocrisy. Liars, deceivers typically do recognize deception. The sexually immoral recognize the sexually immoral. We have a saying for it. Birds of a feather flock together. But there's a spinoff of that. They recognize it in one another. It's not a gotcha moment. There's nothing, I'm gonna end with this, listen. There is nothing redeemable about us. There's nothing lovely about us. 
God saved us because he chose to. Because he wanted to demonstrate his sovereign mercy. He wanted to put on display his loving kindness. Not how good we are. We're not good people. He has set us up as trophies of grace. And we stray from time to time. And what does he do? He sends providential situations into our life. Sometimes it's illness. Sometimes it's physical. Sometimes it's relationship. Sometimes it's our own sins just getting, you know, rising up and taking control of our lives. And we become overwhelmed with our, our anger, it, it, our, our lusts, gambling, drunkenness, whatever the case may be. But God, God pulls us out of those seasons as trophies of grace because it's his power. It's his glory. It's his loving kindness, beloved. And listen, God is not just the God of the soul. God is the God of your body. And what you believe and your convictions and how you live will have a, a, it will have an impact upon your soul, of course, but also your body. If I was someone that cried easily, last night would have been a great time to do it. Someone had sent me this video of this girl, not, 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 not in mockery, like, Lord have mercy on this girl. She had so disfigured her face with this culture, scarred, tattooed. She literally had 50, 60 piercings across her lips, her nose, her face, her eyes. She had her eyes tattooed. I never even heard of such a thing. She wanted them black. And my heart breaks for her. Because let me tell you what I see. I see a young woman at war with God. She can't even look in the mirror and see the image of God in her. She's trying to get rid of it. And she's doing everything she can to silence the voice of nature and God in her and she is destroying it and I break for her. My heart breaks for her because she has destroyed her face. That's, that is culture. That is a disciple of this world. That is a disciple of the devil and this world and she is a product of this world that has lied to her and told her she doesn't matter she's nothing but a bag of sails animated by some forms of electricity she's not anything God doesn't exist and she is not a child that was put into this world for a purpose and we have a lot to do as a church We've got a lot of preaching to do. There's a message. Beloved, the world will be ashamed one day. But we must stand fast in the sovereign mercies of God. And we must not boast about our favor with God. Because there's, there's nothing in us to boast about. Our favor with God is is sovereign favor. It's because he chose to do it. And that is our hope and our joy and the reason we can, like David, cry out to the Lord even when we are under his chastening hand. It's purposeful. God is changing us and shaping us and molding us and he's our father and he's taking us as his children and he's drawing us closer to himself and there's no place that a Christian wants to be more than in the presence of God. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you for this reality check 
Lord, if it weren't for your sovereign grace and mercy, we'd be like the waywardness of this world. We would be lost. We would be deceived. We would be, Lord, filling our lives with garbage and so many, just so much. Some things couldn't even be undone. Thank you for sparing us, saving us, sanctifying us, chastening us, rebuking us, causing our sins to be heavy, causing us to lament and to cry out, O Lord, in our waywardness. Lord, thank you for a conscience that screams guilt when we're guilty, that we would confess our sins, Lord, and flee to you. Lord, your presence is everything. Your presence with us, your closeness to us, makes life so much, so enjoyable and so delightful. Thank you, O Lord, for that happiness, for that joy that we have in Christ. Thank you, O Lord, that you have gifted us the greatest gift of all, your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.